Welcome, everybody, to Hear Her Sports. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Elizabeth Emery. Our guest this week is master wheel builder and owner of Sugar Wheel Works in Portland, Oregon, Jude Gerace. So exciting to have her here. We talk about wheel building, running a small business, being one of the few women in the cycling industry, getting involved in the community, cycling, of course, environmental and personal sustainability, her work with safe routes to schools, and a little bit about puppies. I so admire everything she has put into her business for the past 10 years. Our conversation has some real nuggets of wisdom about being a businesswoman and taking advantage of available help. Jude is excellent at working with mentors. She was kind enough to talk to me early one morning before a group ride. Well, hi, Jude. Welcome. It's really great to have you on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, yeah, you bet. So I'm going to fess up because when I interview someone who's done several interviews recently, I'm not sure how to start because I don't want to rehash the same stuff that can be found elsewhere, but there certainly are important origin stories and introductory bits. So what do you think is the most important about how you started Sugar Wheel Works or about the shop as it is now in the fall 2018 or anything else that you would like to introduce yourself with? Um... Speaking positively, um, I think that I have learned so much over the last 10 years of running a small business, particularly within the cycling industry, which is, you know, you're doing everything on a shoestring budget unless you have, you know, significant capital investment. So I'm very proud of what I've done on a small amount of resources and the team that I have that works with me. I can't say enough great things about them from efficiency to um, readiness to work together. It's really um, a dream come true. That's cool. I'm glad you mentioned that you started on a sh- or that you are on a shoestring budget because it really stood out to me that you your first shop, which was Epic at the time, was basically mm-hmm. in a closet. And I think yeah. that's really, <laughs> you know, I think that's such an interesting way to start. Uh, you know, testing the water, sort of seeing if you wanted to do it, because it was not really much of an idea, it sounds like, when you started. Yeah, when I first started, I, I certainly wasn't planning on it becoming bigger than what it what it was. I thought it would always be something I did in the background of my life, um, and not something that would take center stage. So, um, yeah, um, I guess I, I'm also just very aware of how quickly money can disappear. And so <laughs> while I was in the, the testing phases, I certainly didn't want to overreach myself financially. And so the more that you can do with less is always better. I was really terrified to start my own business. I should say that. I think that it, in hindsight, it's really easy. We can say it in a sentence. I started the business in, you know, April 1st, 2009, you know, la-di-da. But I I struggled with fear for so many years. And um, to say that it's completely gone isn't true, but I've learned to manage it and learn to work with it. What was the leap? I mean, like, how did you take the leap to get started? Um, I think so. I was pushed. So in order to acquire vendors within my industry, you need a commercial workspace. So it's not something that you can do in out of your home, which is how I originally thought I was going to do it as our you know, is the dream of many bicycle mechanics because the overhead in the bicycle industry is so high that you're constantly looking for ways to um, sort of uh, shortcut that. Like, how can I make it so that it costs a lot less? So I thought if I didn't have uh, space, um, I would certainly save money, but your vendors won't allow that. You need commercial insurance, general liability insurance, 
um, all of that kind of stuff. Hmm. Interesting. So looking back at your closet, uh, would you have done anything different now that you know what you know? Um, gosh, I've never been asked that before. And I've honestly never thought that. There are times where if I'm being truthful, where I don't think I would have started the business at all. Um, it is an incredible amount of hard work. And I look at the things I've really given up during these 10 years and the amount of stress that it's been in my life just to get it to where it is. So I think that it would be like still an all or nothing, very black and white. Either I would do it or um, and in a very similar way or not do it at all. Mm-hmm. Can you describe your shop now, which is definitely not a closet anymore? <laughs> well, it's so funny. Um, some people still see the photos of the shop and they're like, wow, it's so small. And I'm like, wow, this feels like it's huge to me. The footprint of the shop is about 530 square feet. And um, we use a lot of uh, wood texture in the shop, um, reclaimed wood from, I think, some um, some type of machine shops or old mills in the area. Um, I have a friend who's a woodworker who, over time, has procured a lot of these pieces. So you can still see oil marks from when the pieces were used formerly. And then, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big open space. We have this spoke wall that kind of splits the shop in two so that when we're building, we can build without many distractions. And then we have sort of the uh, open area for our customer interactions. We encourage people to stop in and be curious. So how many people are working there now? So we have a total of four, including myself. And are you actually building wheels now? I do. Um, You know, in the beginning part of this year, I wasn't as much. I was doing more of our sales and admin, but now we're getting back into the groove where I do about 50% of the building and my colleagues do 50% of the building as well. And I gather you still like building wheels. I do. It's actually, it's it's so second nature to me. So I um, I really enjoy it. Cool. One of the things uh, I hadn't known and I discovered as I was prepping to talk to you is that you guys take into account sort of tiny aspects of a rider's preferences as you're building wheels or as you're designing the wheel with the rider. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the rider preferences I think that you're talking about are um, like how stiff you want the wheel to be, durability, lightweight, essentially how you're going to use the wheel set and um, how we can tailor it to, to fit your needs. Sometimes it's aesthetics as well um, that kind of get thrown into the mix. But surprisingly so, most people aren't as concerned about the aesthetics as the actual ride quality of the wheel, which is kind of awesome. So sometimes it comes down to just spoke count. Sometimes um, we do have to take into account, you know, if the frame material of the bicycle is carbon fiber and you have a rider that's putting out higher wattage, or is just a more powerful rider, they're going to be flexing that wheel a lot more. And we take into account also like previous wheel problems that individual has had. And how can we in this new wheel set solve that problem and offer better performance? So sometimes it's reducing the flex. Sometimes it's just the quality of the material. Sometimes it's some combination of all of them. One of the things that really stuck out for me was taking into account uh, cadence preferences, because I'm sort of a cadence nerd. And so just hearing (laughs) that, like, wow, maybe I'm in the wrong wheel set because I like a certain cadence. Can you explain that a little bit? How does the cadence or how does what you're using influence 
uh, cadence or vice versa or whatever. I would also just like to pause and say I have never been asked these questions in an interview, and I'm so grateful. Oh, well, thank you. Usually in, in interviews, you know, everyone wants to focus on gender, which is fine, but... Um, oh, we might I, get I there. I also have, <laughs> uh, no worries, don't worry. Okay, so I'll make a long story short with the cadence. So individuals with higher cadence, typically their hub set catches faster because your, your legs are moving faster. When you are a lower cadence rider and you know, that there's like a range of where that really falls into because your terrain also matters. Your hub set is not catching as quickly. And I should pause and say that once your hub is engaged, it doesn't matter how many points of engagement you have. But how often it becomes unengaged and you need to re-engage it, that's where sort of engagement and cadence matter. So if you have higher cadence, you're going to catch quicker and you don't need um, a higher engagement ratchet. If you have lower cadence and you have a lot of hesitations in your pedal stroke, a higher engagement ratchet is often beneficial. Now, the downside is that when you're coasting, a higher engagement ratchet often has more friction um, Mm. or um, drag to it versus a ratchet that doesn't have nearly those points of engagement will sort of glide. Now, that's just a rough brush stroke because there are certain hugs that use different technology that that essentially have all the engagement without any of the drag. And there are different downsides to some of those hubs, but um, that's essentially the world that we play in, like what's going to be ideal for the customer. And I should say, we don't decide for the customer. We present the three, three or four options that we think would be ideal for an individual and leave it up to that customer to decide what would be best for them. Yeah, talk me through, like I come in and I want to, buy a wheel from wheel set from you. So how does that work? Like, what's the first question you ask and things like that? Well, we work with essentially four elements. We want to know essentially what uh, budget you're working within because that eliminates or it opens up possibilities. Um, What aesthetic preferences you have. So price, performance, um, maintenance, like uh, how often is reasonable for you to maintain this hub set and then, of course, your overall performance expectations. Like, what problem are we trying to solve with this wheel set? Sometimes there's no problem to solve. Sometimes someone just has worn through something and they want something identical to what they've had in the past with, you know, a few minor changes to it. But oftentimes we find people are coming to us because there is a specific problem they want to solve. Hmm. Like what? Um, for larger riders, it's things that are breaking. So they want something durable and we want to give them durability, but we also don't want to take away from their performance. So we're always kind of rocking that line between durability and performance. Um, Sometimes our builds are really conservative. If the the goal is not to build the lightest possible wheel set, you know, having a few extra spokes in there certainly, you know, it weighs maybe 20 grams more, but we favor um, a more durable wheel set over a lighter wheel set. You know, let's go back a little bit. Like, why why are wheels so important? I mean, for somebody who's never been on a really good, nice set of wheels, what are they going to feel if they mm-hmm. get on, on your set? Um, well, from what I've been riding hand-built wheels for so long, so it's really hard for me to have that, you know, wow, aha moment again. But from what I've heard from our customers is that it feels... Um, it feels livelier. Um, it, 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 there's something to be said for the quality of craftsmanship that one can feel in the in the final ride finish. There's um, 
this one tandem rider um, in particular who had had hand-built wheels before. But when I looked at his wheels, the design, it was really narrow of a wheel set. And for him and his partner, I felt that maybe just widening the rim out a little bit and making sure all the tension was uniform, that would be the right choice for them. And when he got on that wheel set, he said he could feel the difference, not just in the the choice of components, but in how he felt the wheel was tensioned, that it felt like it was well-balanced. And that was something that he said he hadn't experienced before. I haven't gotten that feedback quite that often. And there are certain people that are more sensitive to spoke tension than others. I've also noticed that. But in general, you you get on the wheel set and you just it, it just feels more like you can rely on it. Um, and then there are the performance aspects. Like sometimes you do feel like you're going a lot faster because the hub set engages faster. So, you know, it, it, it all comes down to the quality of the build, but it also comes down to the, your component selection as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like I've gotten on wheel sets now that are factory built or are, and there's just the sluggishness to them. There's no, it, it they just feel sort of like, yeah, this will this will get me by. You you know, it's fine. You're rolling on it. I mean, you're like <laughs> if you don't know if there's anything better out there, you're like, oh, okay. Well, I guess this is how this bike rides. Mm-hmm. But then you put hand built wheels on there with you know quality components, and man, you feel like you're you, you feel so much better on on the bike. You feel like you can do a lot more. Like your equipment's not holding you back. Your wheels aren't cheap, so. You know, like who are your customers and who would you like to see coming into the shop? Um, our customers really range. We deal with a lot of less expensive commuter builds. So people that are avid riders all the way to your high-end cyclist that is doing a lot of uh, road riding either for themselves or as part of a team. We don't do as many racing wheels. And I think that's primarily because a lot of racers are sponsored or or maybe even sponsored by a bike shop. Um, so that's, I think, part of that mix there. I really like the customers we work with. The customers we work with want a quality product. They believe in the benefits of a hand-built wheel, not just for performance, but the sustainability aspect of it. With a hand-built wheel, because the components are individually selected and there's no proprietary lacing patterns or drill patterns in the hub or the rim, you know, you can reuse that hub through many different iterations. It's not always possible if you're, you've changed your bicycle and the standards of your bike are a little different than what the hub can do. Um, if you're switching from rim brake to disc brake or disc brake to rim brake, um, you know, it may not be possible to reuse your hub in that scenario. But all things being equal, that is one of the benefits of a hand-built wheel is that over 50% of the cost of your wheel is right in the hub. And if you maintain that hub, um, you can, you know, it's cost effective in the long run. And then um, obviously, you know, repairs are so easy with a really well tensioned wheel. Occasionally we do have a spoke that breaks, you know, you get a spoke in the batch that, you know, just wasn't up to QC from the factory and it breaks over its lifetime or a chain goes into your wheel and it snaps a few spokes. Um, the handled wheel is so much easier to repair can almost do it always on the spot for a customer that has one of our wheels because you plug it in and you bring it up to tension and it's almost exactly true and you don't get that from a wheel that hasn't been so meticulously built in the first place. I love that you talk about sustainability and sort of the repairability which is unusual these days. 
I sound like yeah, an old you know, fart. that's actually why I started the no, <laughs> that's actually why I started the business. I'm like when I was first, you know, I was you know, I got into road cycling, but I didn't have a lot of money and um it, you know, you could buy the fancy wheel systems that looked all blingy and the paired spokes and so forth. But as a mechanic, when one of those broke and you hand someone a bill for how much it's going to cost, you're like, oh, my goodness, this doesn't make any sense. And you can't reuse your hub or anything else, you know, in, in future iterations. So that's definitely one of those things. And because they're hand built, I actually have a metal recycling guy come by and pick up the metal that we divide out into stainless steel and aluminum. Cool. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's just so much easier to recycle these pieces than to, um, yeah. Yeah. I haven't figured out the carbon fiber thing, just so you're aware. So if that's the, yeah. a question you have, I haven't <laughs> quite figured that out, but that doesn't mean we're going to stop trying. Um, carbon does last a lot longer than aluminum or, yeah. So there's mm-hmm. that, but it's certainly something we have to work with in the industry. Right. So I brought up price. So I do want to talk about, because you've mentioned uh, that you don't give discounts, and I think this is really great. Can you talk about sort mm-hmm. of your pricing and what you think about, you know, people that come into your shop and, and don't understand the value of really good work? And, and do you talk to them about that? Um, no, not really. Most people don't. Either they were lucky, either people come in and they are ready to buy a wheel set or they're curious and will create an estimate for them. While we don't give discounts per se. We do run sales periodically, and that is something that we find our customers look forward to. And then there are times where I wouldn't say that we we have to be aware of what's happening in the marketplace as well. So I don't know how to say this. Um, it, in order to, there's the survival instinct that we also have to have with our business also. So I would say that we funneled most of our discounts into our sales or our promotions, very specifically, very, you know, for a specific amount of time. We want people to get into hand-built wheels, so we don't want to appear um, too out of touch for, for individuals. But at the same time, we, I do have to pay my employees a fair wage. And, you know, that what was a fair wage in Portland like five years ago is a lot harder to consider a fair wage today just because uh, rent for employees has gone up so dramatically in the last five years in Portland. So that's something that we think about also, but yeah, you know, I want to, I want to do right by my employees as well. And I think that that has been the hardest thing to do uh, within the bicycling industry. And I often wonder how other shops manage that because um, high turnover is not something you want in a small production company where you would be constantly training someone to, you know, learn the skill or the craft over and over again. So, yeah. um, So in general, we don't offer discounts. It's not something I usually have to explain. We work really hard for our customers. And I think that's been our reputation. And I think that has, has worked really well for us. Mm-hmm. So I've always taken that positive approach. Like we, we, we do, you know, a customer comes back a few years later and something's gone awry with their wheel set. More often than not, we take care of it for them. Right. Right. We talk about that as well. Like how do we make like wheel sets a little bit more affordable, et cetera. But you know, sometimes that I, I, we haven't cracked the nugget on that one. Even when we advertise like lower cost wheel sets, I think that people get really excited about the nicer, um, sets that we do build that are out there. So 
um, yeah, it's a it's an opportunity for us to learn. I haven't cracked the nugget on that though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation, particularly since you brought in the full cost of the wheels, which includes taking care of your employees. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You mentioned early on that you were fearful to start the business. So, you know, like, how did you figure out how to do what you're doing and how to start the business and and things like that? Um, well, the wheel building part very quickly became the easiest part of the business, of course. There's branding, there's negotiating leases, there's all the legal stuff that one has to navigate through, there's bookkeeping, there's managing cash flow, and all of that stuff is the stuff that I feel like has tortured me over the years and has just been, I mean, even even through taking many, many, many classes, it's, you know, sometimes you'd show up in a class and we'd be talking about the profit and loss statement and you know, they, they talk about it as though if you say it once, like you're supposed to get it. And so I haven't actually been to a class that has really broken that down in such a great way that's digestible for, you know, a, a new person running a business. That being said, you know, through time and practice and working with my accountant, I had been able to understand that much better. But, you know, that takes years to, to really get. So oftentimes I, I tell my partner, it's it's like I have a PhD in running a small business now. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of an, and, that, and those are the small victories that uh, no one, it's not like I can broadcast, yes, I just figured this out. Then cash flow positive for the last, you know, X amount of quarters. And I mean, no one cares about that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but it's like those, those are the quiet victories of being a small business owner, right? Um, so all of that stuff was probably the hardest in establishing routines and uh, systems around that. And then establishing systems around, like, as you look at productivity in the shop as well, you know, and set goals for what the shop is able to accomplish, you know, that, that all kind of works together. So, you know, there was a time where I focused on the financials then a time where I focused on work-life balance, um, which includes better production times and so forth. And, the city of Portland is great. We had access to some lean manufacturing classes at a really reasonable and reduced rate um, that I took advantage of. And that helped so much with running our business and, you know, shutting the lights off at 630 and knowing that we had done everything that we needed to do in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, there were certainly years where I was working till one or two in the morning just to get through things. Wow. It, you seem really good at, at taking advantage of, like you said, the classes, but you also have a lot of mentors. Oh, yeah. Tons and tons of mentors. Um, I mean, right now I'm mentor light, um, so I don't have as many. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but I mean, right now what I'm favoring in terms of mentorship is the collaboration of small groups. I'm a part of several small business um, cohorts. And I think that has helped um, significantly where I learn from similar businesses or ones that are slightly outside of what I do. So brainstorming together is a lot of fun. Um, I certainly have a lot more confidence in um, in myself as a business owner as well. Um, but yeah, and the, I wouldn't, I would not be where I am without my mentors. That's for sure. Do you mentor people, other people? Um, only through this, like this collaboration mm-hmm. um, that I have in these different groups. I, wouldn't say I'm at the point where mentoring other people would be beneficial to that individual. <laughs> so how does the the group look? You guys get together once a month or and hang out and have breakfast? 
Yeah, I mean, it looks different for every group that I'm a part of, but one of the favorite ones that I have is a one-on-one with a friend of mine who owns a small business. And, you know, the first part, we spend time off-gassing about our frustrations that are, I would say, not inappropriate, but wouldn't be great to vent at work. And certainly, like, sometimes it's about, you know, the way our team is flowing or our personal work-life balance. So it gives us a little chance to off-gas about what's actually going on. I love that and term. And then... Um, yeah, right. Um, I mean, you, you need that, like, and you need it with someone that gets it. Like, you know, I'm balancing all of these things, and this person wants one more thing for me. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I mean, that happens a lot. You're stretched. As a small business owner, you are sometimes wearing all the hats at once. And that takes a certain amount of skill and perseverance to do that, you know, time and time again. No, no one else understands that. And so that's the benefit of having sort of a cohort that you can bring that to. But then what I'm also really grateful for is that the second half of our meeting is usually about strategy. Like, how are we going to manage, you know, what we see coming down the pike? Or, um, you know, if winter is going to be horrible, what's our strategy for, you know, our, our sales strategy as well as just surviving uh, mm-hmm. the winter season? So I think those things are pretty special and unique. Um, And then, you know, there are also other things that come up, like how are we going to better serve the women trans femme within our customer base as well. And so I I think those things are are really nice to have someone to bounce ideas off of. And how did those groups get formed? Or how did you find your, uh, your mentors? Like, how did that happen? Um, When I had official mentors or an advisory board, I don't know, you know, sometimes Sometimes it's just luck. Someone will come in and you'll have a great conversation with someone and then you'll you'll take that relationship to the next level and ask them to be your mentor. Um, and, you know, you always want to have like a time frame around it so that, you know, you are respectful of someone else's time, especially someone that is, you know, more advanced than you are that you're you're asking to them to teach you in a sense. So even just in, in meeting duration as well as like time frame, like, maybe for the next year we can meet. And so my first mentor was um, uh, a gentleman by the name of David Browning, who was an engineer. And man, I, I owe so much to David Browning for sitting down and talking to me. It, we worked together for maybe three years and I would come to his office every Monday for about an hour and he would just sit and explain engineering principles. We would, um, we did fail tests or we, we looked at things that had failed and we determined like what maybe caused the failure to happen. So by looking at sometimes the way the metal splits, you can determine where the um, uh, failure or how it had occurred. Was it through compression? Was it through hitting something? Lots of different things. That's so um, cool. So I, have, I owe him. Yeah, it is really, really cool. And he got nothing out of it except for helping me and his wife Kay was she's a chemical engineer so she would pipe in sometimes and she's really you know she's a powerhouse as well and I feel just so grateful for the time and energy that they put into helping me Mm -hmm. um yeah I'm really and then you know you meet some advisors and some you know and the other thing about advisors is that if you decide to take their advice it doesn't always necessarily work out to a positive outcome. And that was a tough lesson for me to learn as well. Sometimes like you get advice and I think it's well-intentioned advice and well thought out and it may have worked in a different scenario, but it doesn't work for you. And you may have invested some serious money into that as well. And that kind of stinks. Mm -hmm. And, 
it's, and I think the important thing is to remember at the end of the day, it's still your business. You are still driving it. Um, and I think it's also important that as a small business, you have to make some serious mistakes. I think those are real reckoning moments for, for an individual. Yeah, that was my next question is, have you had rough patches and what have those been? Mm. You know, and I, I will speak very broadly about those rough patches, but um, I made some investments into um, essentially uh, like our website. That was, that, that was a really, really rough patch for our business. And for a myriad of reasons, um, in hindsight, I'm like, ah, oh, I wish I, you know, maybe I could do that a little differently. You know, it all, in the end, it's all worked out. But boy, there were some serious years of, are we going to make it? Are we not going to make it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you really learn. You learn quite a bit about, um, you know, how, how much you want this business to work. You have a, like a fighting spirit that comes out. And you, I don't know, I, I don't know what it did, but it really, it, it really opened my eyes to, Judy, you got to wake up, like, you know, and no one is going to care about this business. You're the guardian of this business. And so that was a pretty profound moment for me. And the thing is, is that a rough patch doesn't just last like a week or two. It can go for a year or two. And I think that's the thing. With, yeah. I know, right? <laughs> You're like, oh my goodness. How do you survive a year or two of that? Right. But, you know, and then it was just, there were a lot of, during that time, there was a perfect storm as well. There was a really cold winter, a really bad fire season as well. And so our sales were being munched on both ends. And so, yeah, it was just, that was just a really, really rough year. And really grateful that I have, I built safety nets into my business so that, you know, they're there when you need them. But still, when you're a small business and you have, two or three bad months in a row, really bad months, you begin to wonder if that's the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. Are you good at uh, sort of learning the lessons and putting those bad patches behind you? And, you know, I mean, not forgetting them, but, you know, not absorbing it anymore. Oh, please. They tortured me for like a long time. I would say that I'm now just getting over them and I see my own resilience. I think that's another thing that, you know, it took a while for me to see is that I'm, I'm resilient and I can make positive outcomes. Like, you know, there's a lot of like personal pep talks that I've had to give myself. But as I look back and I see how difficult that trail was and where I am now, I'm, I'm pretty darn proud of myself. Again, that comes with, um, like we started this conversation. I'm really proud of the team that I have now. But that also came with significant amount of hard work for myself and also changing the way that I showed up at work because I have the biggest impact on what happens at Sugar. And through a lot of this, I recognized that I had to be different when I came to work. And that, I think, is the hardest thing as you're, as you're dealing with all of the, the challenges and unique things that happen in running a small business, then you're also having to work on yourself as well and how you approach those challenges and really having faith that, you know, in a more positive outcome. So I've been really grateful that I am a resilient person, but also really grateful that I've taken some time to to work on my approach to some of the problems that we've had. If you want a different outcome, but you keep approaching a problem the same way, I mean, you're, you're only going to end up with the same result. And it might be by luck you end up with something different. 
So I made some necessary changes in my life that allowed for... What do you mean by um, coming to work differently? Do you mean sort of differently than you are in the rest of your life or differently than you had been going to work before? Differently than I had been going before. Instead of bringing my stress to work about what I felt or how the business is going, et cetera, like living out that play-by-play in every interaction, I, you know, was able to set aside time to focus on the business part of it. And then when I'm at the shop, I'm focused on our customers, the needs of my employees. So it's it's almost like I can make those transitions a lot smoother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the worry and stress, and it's all there, but I just have a different view of it now. And it's not it's not the end-all be-all. I've come to accept that sugar might not last forever, and that's okay. I'm going to enjoy it and do the best I can while I'm here now. And that's a huge move for a small business because we so very desperately want our businesses to work. And that's why we put so much love and care into them. And it's, you know, sometimes it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I think there's value in coming to accept that even early on. Hmm. That's, That's good advice. Uh, have you had rough patches because you're a woman? Um, minor ones. Um, I mean, minor setbacks from, you know, they're, they're subtle. I'll, I'll say that much. I don't think they're intentional. I just think that the culture of my industry is not one that necessarily knows what to do with women. I'll give you an example. So you go to a trade show, right? And you may not be asked out to like after hours beers with a group Mm. of guys that, you know, and it's not like they're, it's not that like they're being malicious at all. It's just that they're not going out of their way to be inclusive. And sometimes when they are inclusive, they don't always know what to do with you. So I'm always grateful when someone asks me to, Hey, come, come join our little, you know, dinner party. And even if it's awkward and whatnot, like I understand the intention and I respect that so much. But it's, it's in those little areas, though, where, where business happens. That's like the golf course of the totally. bicycle industry. Yeah, totally. And I think in those ways, women miss out or non-binary individuals miss out. And I think that's a bummer. And I don't necessarily know how to fix that because, again, I don't think it's malicious at all. I just think that it's a, a blind spot. And, you know, I think... I think uh, women trans femme have done a great job of trying to expose that blind spot, whether individuals listen or not. That's, I mean, therein lies the <laughs> the crux of the issue, really. But there, I've also been treated really kindly, especially in the last few years. I really see a lot of my male counterparts really making an effort to um, include, even if it's you know don't really know what to do with it. You right, know, right. so that's also been really nice. Are you still one of the few women in the business? Like, what kind of numbers are we talking about now or percentages? I don't know, but I do know, I, I have no no hard numbers for you. Um, I do know that when I started out, though, it was really hard for me to find other women that were even in the industry, let alone owning a business in the industry. Mm-hmm. And now it's so much more common. And that is not a result of any effort of mine. It is a result of the tremendous amount of work that other women have put into this that I've benefited from um, as well. And I'm really grateful to those women and I'm now, you know, joining their ranks and, you know, helping them in ways that I can, whether it's helping them with, 
you know, in part of these cohorts of running a small business or just standing in support of what they're they're doing and their message and so forth. Um, but yeah, there does seem to be a lot more women uh, in the, in the industry, and that makes me really happy. Yeah. Especially going to trade shows now versus five years ago. I mean, it's still predominantly male-dominated industry, but there are more women in the industry. Mm-hmm. And taking it from the other side, from the customer side, I just had breakfast with a cyclist woman friend, and she told me of her most mm-hmm. recent experience at the bike shop. And it was, you know, typical. We've all heard these stories. <laughs> but hers seemed particularly bad for some reason. Like, she knew exactly what she wanted, and she just was not being heard. And she's a super feisty, badass woman. And so I just think about like, my gosh, you know, if she doesn't get heard, <laughs> there's not much hope. Well, you know, I just recently had an experience like that, too. I went in with my husband's bike, and I needed a very specific part. And the guy grabbed the bike out of my hands, put it in his like, oh, let me look at it. And I'm like, well, actually, I need a very specific part. This is very specifically what I need. And all I expected him to do was get me the part. And I brought the bike in just so that I could test it in the shop. And he, he did it, and then he brought out some part that I was like, this is super boost. This is not even like a 12 by 142 through axle. So, I mean, like I already knew more. It was just, I was, I was perplexed. I was angry. You know, I, I didn't know what to do after that. It had been such a long time since I had been treated like that in a bike shop. Um, so that was, that was a very frustrating moment. But, you know, as I shared the experience with a male friend of mine, you know, they've also had those experiences as well. I mean, I don't, while I do think it happens more to women and it it also has a deeper impact on us because of how historically we've been treated within these types of settings, especially when it comes to talking about technical things, there are men that, that also experience that as well. And I just think it's just crappy customer service and come on people. I mean, (laughs) I think I, I, I don't understand it. Like who's like, who's winning here? I don't know. It certainly doesn't make any of like, you know, it, it impacts, you know, men just as much as or not nearly as much as it does women, but it does happen to men as well. And for some reason, I thought that was a silver lining in all of it. Like, phew, at least we're all being treated shitty together. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. yay? I don't know. Yeah. As you said, it's certainly not the way to win customers back. Yeah, it, I stay away. And I don't go to bike shops that often, but yeah. I certainly stopped recommending individuals to that shop. Yeah. So, yeah. well, maybe they'll learn. Yeah, what a bummer. This, yeah. So, what are your five, 10 year plans? You know, what do you see as the upcoming changes in your shop and your business? You know, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm certainly at a at a place where I'm trying to figure that out. I've been in a sort of reactive position in terms of seeing sort of how disc brakes end up in the industry, um, both in the road side of things and the mountain side of things. You know, having come through a few years of working really, really hard, I think at this moment I'm enjoying a little work-life balance. I have some plans for the winter to sort of create that five-year strategy again. But beyond that, I'm not entirely, I'm not entirely sure. I'd like to you know, I have certain sales goals that I'd like to see and like us hit certain numbers so that it opens up just a little bit more a work-life balance for my employees. But right now, I think it's just about pausing in this moment. And we're coming up on 10 years of being in business. 
and just taking a deep breath. It's mm-hmm. been a really rigorous 10 years for me. You know, as you can imagine, I eat, sleep, drink sugar. So, <laughs> um, right. So I think, I think I've, I've given myself just a, a little bit of a break and also to kind of figure out like, what are like, listen to what other people's strategies are as well. When you already have um, a slightly mature business, how do you move to that next step? Because I always say that we're, we're in this gray zone of being just moderately successful, successful enough to, you know, stay open, run a solid business the way I want to, but not successful, like not the ultimate success of, you know, drinking uh, little umbrella <laughs> drinks on the beach somewhere. I mean, right. that doesn't come in the bicycle industry, right? So right. I don't know. Um, I wish I had an answer for you. I think that's what everybody wants out of an entrepreneur is this big vision. But I think I'm, I'm, t- I'm taking a moment to pause and figure out where it is we want to go next. Right. And I guess in this last year, too, I've really spent so much more time riding. And I haven't ridden a bike nearly as much as I have in the last really year and a half um, in, in running a business. I mean, you're just spent all the time. So I think that there's also a lot I'm learning from like how my customers experience cycling again, which is giving me a lot of really fun, creative ideas. Um, but yeah, cool. I, again, I wish I had a, a better answer for you. <laughs> well, you did a nice segue. What kind of riding are you doing? Well, we just recently got a dog, which is another like life dream of mine is to have a dog. So our little Ozzy loves uh, running. Um, and so we've really gotten into mountain biking this last year. It's a nice break from being on the road, which is traditionally how I ride, and just getting to explore a lot of the trails out here. And our dog absolutely loves it as well. So I've not only I have the unique position of getting my husband into mountain biking, um, but also training our dog to do that as well. So pri- primarily every weekend we're out mountain biking, and then about two times a week, sometimes three times a week, I'm out on my road bike riding around here, sometimes getting in a loop before work or or after work. Mm-hmm. And gravel riding. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so when you go out, are you training? Are you just going out to get out, to clear your head? I mean, like, what, what are your aims for when you go out? You know, it always starts out, I'm just going to go out for a ride just to, to be in the world because I always feel better after a bike ride. But there's always, you know, the more in shape one gets, you look at a hill a little differently <laughs> and you're like, well, I'm going to try I'm going to try that a little bit better. And my Monday ride group, which is meeting um, like in about an hour here, I have a, a friend that I've been riding with for six years and now her daughter's riding with us. And she's about 10 years younger than I am, maybe 15. Oh my God. Um, and she is just a natural athlete. And so she is definitely pushing our pace a little bit and I love it. So I I don't intend to often go out for, you know, for a hard training ride, but sometimes that happens and Mm -hmm. I kind of embrace that. I really like that a lot. Um, I always feel a lot better afterwards. Cool. Well, I have two more questions. So sure. one, you've talked a lot about um, sort of community things, like you've had mentors, you have the support groups that you're now doing, you just talked about a group ride. So talk a little bit about community and why that's important. And, and you know, how does that impact your business? Sure. Actually, one of the things that I'm most proud of is the fundraiser I started for the Safe Routes to School programming. So essentially to ensure that kids in the next generation have access to riding safely and learning how to ride bikes. Believe it or not, that's a huge 
saying that, every kid uh, has the privilege of learning to ride a bicycle. So our fundraiser last year alone raised over $30,000 for Safe Routes to School programming. But it's also a community-building event. We choose uh, really diverse storytellers so that our audience is also diverse. So you get all different types of cyclists in the room talking and catching up. So that's been a lot of fun, and uh, that event is going on its ninth year. So that's been a huge success of our community-building arm. Largely, in general, I've been focused on children. You know, when you're a small business, you get asked to donate to a lot of different causes. And so you quickly have to pare down like what your focus is going to be. And so my focus has always been working with uh, the next generation. So that's like one of the bigger ways that I'm involved in the community and opening up my shop to kids camps and so forth and giving them store tours and just being involved in in those ways. I, I think that a small shop like mine gets to where they are because of the community. And so I think a small shop like mine is in a really unique position to give back and influence the way that we help our communities. Are you hopeful with the kids that you meet? You know, oftentimes, especially because I am a woman, they want to give me all the little kids, uh, girls camps. And I love that. But I also ask that it's a mix. Um, I think it's really important as a small business, female small business owner, that especially little boys get to see women in positions like mine, um, especially in technical positions. Sure. And so, um, so that's been a lot of fun. And you're right, the kids are, they're really bright eyed, they're excited, they love riding their bikes. I don't think they recognize, you know, I think, I think they get to take it for granted that they can ride on our streets as safely as they do. Although there's still, you know, accidents that happen that are not acceptable. But yeah, by and large, I'm really inspired by them and their ideas and their creativity, especially. Well, final question. I ask this frequently. You're on the go. You're at work. How do you eat well during the day? Oh, um, I bring a lunch every day or most days. And I think in the last, I would say, six to eight months, I plan everything out. My husband and I take turns cooking for different weeks, so it's much easier to reliably have food. And so that's really helpful. It also helps that the coffee shop in our building stops serving donuts, so that's um, <laughs> been helpful for yes. all of us. Um, but yeah, I think you know, bringing a lunch, we have a refrigerator at work. I often even come home for lunch um, so that I can uh, see our dog. And I, not a lot of people have that benefit. I almost don't have to think about that anymore. That's pretty cool. So when you say you plan things, you're making food for the week, you know, like on Sunday or something like that? Um, kind of like, um, no, I don't, I don't necessarily cook for the week, but I definitely have a meal plan for the week. And I know what's for dinner, which is like the worst question at our house, right? Yes. Um, and I always have a lunch made so that I think that that helps a lot from with snacks and so forth. And I live in a, in a dense urban area. And so there's a grocery store about a block and a half from the shop as well. So um, that's always helpful. Well, very good. Uh, is there anything that we didn't get to that you want to add? No, I'm just, I'm really appreciative that you're taking the time to speak, especially to different women in the industry. I think, you know, we learn the most through hearing other people's stories and we learn the most of what we're capable of through, you know, sharing our experiences as well. So thank you very much for thinking of me and um, having me on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you for being here. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
As a quick follow-up to our conversation, because Jude and I talked about pricing, I asked her in an email a bit later for some specifics about what her wheels cost. She replied that wheel sets, so meaning two wheels, start at $475. She adds that most of her customers find their dream set in the range of $800 to $1,200. She also wanted to remind everyone that 50% of the cost of wheels are in the hub and those can be reused. So to all of you and to me dreaming of a Sugar Wheelworks set of wheels, check out her website at sugarwheelworks.com. Sending out another thank you to Jude Gerace, owner of Sugar Wheelworks, for being here today and for answering the follow-up questions. And thanks to you for listening. Hear Her Sports was started to increase media coverage of female athletes and women in sport. 44% of athletes are women, and only 4% of sports media coverage is about women. That's not a number, it's a rounding error. Tell your friends about the podcast and about fantastic, strong women speaking up and doing amazing things. Please subscribe on iTunes, subscribe to the Hear Her Sports newsletter, or donate on hearhersports.com and encourage others to do the same. As women, we're all going to benefit from spreading the word and speaking up. Women in general, you, me, and my inspiring guests. And a big thank you to Agnes, the band Goldmines, the blog She Rides a Bike, and Leap Strategies for super support and partnership. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye. The second round is always better. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.